0: Welcome to The Outpouring with Executive Pastor Bob Oliver of the New Covenant Church of Philadelphia. I would like to turn your attention to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. I'll be reading starting at verse 10, ending at verse 18. And so Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, Above all, taking the shield of faith, which which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for all the saints. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. And let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Lord, I am scared and I am nervous, but I ask that you hide me behind the cross. Lord, so that the only thing that I can see right now is the blood that Jesus Christ shed for me way back on Calvary. Father God, I don't know the needs of anybody right now that is under the sound of my voice, but you do. And so, Lord, as you have invited us into your sanctuary, may we now invite you into our hearts. We ask all of this in your son, Jesus Christ's holy name, where there is power in the blood. Amen. New Covenant this morning, I wanna talk to you on It's a Fixed Fight. If I can, I would like to give a disclaimer real quick. As for me in this message, I need to speak deliberately to some people who know what it's like to sometimes consider themselves their own worst enemy. People who aren't afraid to say, I know what it's like to feel too stressed to be blessed, who have interacted with people who are so righteous that they're self-righteous, who can admit that they have had some good days and some hills to climb, some bad days and some sleepless nights. I need to talk to some real life Christians who got some real life problems who at least at one point in time or another in their lives said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because maybe those type of Christians will have an answer to what has been severely bothering me. How is it? That one of the most notable and quotable scriptures of our time, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood is also easily one of the most forgettable. Pastor Bob, because quiet is kept, I don't think we understand the scripture well. I mean, it's memorable. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but it's forgettable as we argue with one another, yelling and cursing and hitting below the belt. It's catchy until yet again someone betrays us and we're running the social media talking about try Jesus and not me or I'm holy with a little bit of hood. It's striking until a car cuts us off and we're yelling every expletive in the book that ain't found in our good book. I... Must be talking about myself. My bad. Okay, it's remarkable, but forgettable as our children disobey us and we remind them that we brought them into this world and we can take them out. I'm looking for an old school saint to help me understand how we know scripture, quote scripture, but we forget scripture when we claim to love a God who we have not yet seen, but have no love. No grace, no mercy, nor any forgiveness for our brothers and our sisters who we see every day. You see... In seminary, during my discipleship course, they taught us that the vertical bar on the cross represented our relationship with God. It's a top-down relationship, but that the horizontal bar represented our relationship with each other. It's a parallel standing. In other words, you can't love God and not love the person sitting next to you. After all, God is love, and love is God, and to know love is to know God, which is why... Jesus said the two greatest commands were to love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. That's why the devil's greatest tactic is having you wrestle with flesh and blood because he will make an accomplice out of you if you let him. We give the devil far too much credit than what he truly deserves because every single time we ignore the doctrine that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, yet start wrestling in and with our flesh and blood, the devil, he no longer has to do but so much to make us active participants in spiritual warfare. The devil, he doesn't mind being our scapegoat if we avoid taking accountability because every single time we false acceptable to the devil's strategies and schemes we are rejecting the wisdom of our father that inspired Paul to tell us to stand stand against the devil and not with him stand therefore despite how tempting it might look withstand the evil day no matter how hard it gets having done all to stand doing everything you can not to fall victim to the devil because on the surface. It'll look like a case of, who does my spouse think they're talking to? But underneath what you can see... Sometimes your spouse didn't grow emotionally nor spiritually past the age where someone hurt them and didn't even apologize for it. Now they're projecting the spirit of bitterness onto you. I mean, in the earthly realm, the devil will make it look like someone is just gossiping about you, but what the devil is blinding you from seeing is that those people who speak and believe every lie told about you have recognized the anointing in you and they can't afford for you to realize it too. Now they're carrying the spirit of jealousy and projecting their discontentment onto you on the surface. I know you didn't raise your child to blatantly disregard you, but sometimes our children like to practice monkey see monkey do. And I'm not talking about one of their little friends, parents. I'm talking about them watching you. Because how dare we expect our children to listen to parental authority when their parents are still wrestling with honor and their heavenly father's authority. It's in your relationships where the work of God is really tested and demonstrated on your life. Maybe we wrestle with our flesh and blood because that doctrine isn't the only notable scripture we romanticize yet fail to apply. Because if we are still wrestling with our flesh, we might have missed the critical discipleship principle that says to crucify our flesh, which... But theologically explain why the devil grows from a snake in Genesis to a dragon in Revelations because we are feeding the flesh when we are driven to prove why we are right, when gossip is more glorious than praying for someone, when scripture is just Christian conduct on content on social media, but not Christian conduct in real life. When you can boast about God delivering you, but you are still holding people to their previous mistakes, we are feeding the flesh. The devil's greatest scheme was turning God's people against God and God's people against each other and them not even realizing it. Because every single time we reduce conflict and contention to surface level experiences, we go to war with the same people we are supposed to be fighting the war with on behalf of the same God we were supposed to be representing. Stop feeding the flesh and quenching the spirit. I hope you don't mind me teaching before I preach because there are three ways that we will have to examine this text today. Literally, what Paul said, symbolically, what Paul meant, and inferentially, what Paul wanted us to understand. And I love that word inferentially because etymologically, meaning the word's origin, inferentially means to carry forward. Once you have the evidence to back up your conclusions, you are supposed to carry forward with what you now know, as the saints would say, don't leave here how you came. So from the literal perspective, there's some groundwork we have to lay. Paul is currently under house arrest in Rome alongside Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Ephesians is considered a prison epistle. They are the letters that Paul wrote while imprisoned by the Romans. Romans. And while the churches at Corinth and Galatia are Paul's problem children, Ephesus and Philippi are his golden children. They have yet to face the issues and the challenges that drove Paul's writings to Galatia and Corinth. The church at Corinth was so problematic that Paul wrote approximately four letters to them, even though only two were recorded in the Bible. Paul had to write on contention and division and explains why this interferes with the success of the ecclesia, the assembly or gathering of Christ's believers, what we now call the church. In Galatians, Paul says, I can't believe you're leaving these Christian teachings so early. I can't believe you're more interested in religion than relationship. I can't believe you would rather emphasize your own works than that of Jesus's work so By the time Paul writes to Ephesus and Philippi in understanding his impending death, Paul begins to forewarn the church about what's to come. He has already seen what happens when we don't really believe what we say we really believe. Ephesians, Crash Course, chapters 1 and 2. Paul reminds the church at Ephesus the what and why we believe in Christ because we once walked according to the course of this world. And let me run that back. We once walked, that's past tense. You ticked me off, I'll tell you off. But that mentality can coexist or operate in this newly transformed life. You've been born again. I mean, God's grace saved you from the temper that should have gotten you knocked out. God's grace delivered you from the sickness that tried to claim you. God's grace restored you when you were falling off the straight and narrow path. And what I love about what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 is that God saved God delivered. God restored you. Not because you are special, deserving, could afford it, your accomplishments or your titles, but because God, because God is, God is the I am that I am, meaning he becomes whatever you need, meaning he becomes whatever you need, meaning God becomes whatever you need in your time of trouble. His works, not ours. So, in chapters 3 through 5, Paul told us how we are to work together as the assembly of the body of Christ. Paul, he fashions us to the body because the body has organs, and all the organs are vital, but even in their individual responsibilities, they can't work without the other. The brain needs to tell your heart to pump blood, but the brain can't send a message to the heart without the heart pumping. In other words, if you have the gift of singing, go on and sing. Sing your alto and let them sing their soprano. We call that a harmony. If they have the gift of preaching, let them preach if they appeal to the younger and you the older generations good that's a church that understands the importance of intergenerational preaching something for everyone and when you put that all together that's called a church service don't worry about what god placed in you placed a specific don't worry about what God placed in someone else when the same God placed a specific purpose in you so that you two can function together to bring glory to God because that is the purpose of the church, to carry forward the message of the cross. Your purpose is attached explicitly to God's will and not the other way around. It's a top-down relationship. And what's ironic about Paul talking about marriage children and households in chapters five and six is that he doesn't limit the assembly of Christ to a physical building. He gets deeper. There is the building and there is the body. There is new covenant and there is you. And there are no differences between the two. How you operate in God's ordained sanctuary is the respect you give through in and from your bodily temple. Respecting others is respecting yourself. And when we realize that this whole world is God's sanctuary, that you cannot flee from his presence, that he knows your thoughts before you think them, then you wouldn't think twice about getting your house in order before God comes back to clean house because it's a parallel standing. But after seeing how Galatian, and Corinth started to do everything but stand in Christ, I mean, they were falling for false doctrine. They were falling out because of worrying about the who's who and who's doing what. They were falling back into the lifestyles that they once walked in in accordance with this world. Paul told the church at Ephesus to stand. He mentions that word stand four times in the text, and in the Greek, it means to be established, kept intact, escaping safely, to be immovable, always ready and prepared. In other words, Paul says, stay ready so you don't have to get ready, because there's a storm out on the ocean, and it's moving this old way, and if your soul's not anchored in Jesus, you will surely pass away. It makes me think of my favorite movie, Pearl Harbor, with Ben Affleck. Once the Japanese started attacking our fleet, the alarm began to sound, letting the soldiers know we were under attack. And immediately, the soldiers started picking up their armory, running to their posts, engaging in war, and meeting the enemy exactly where they were. The attack might have come as a surprise, but they were trained not to go down without a fight, having done all to stand. When Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, he uses the Greek word like pon," which doesn't mean in conclusion, but from now on or for the remaining time to come. In other words, Paul sounded the alarm because Paul understood that a flaw in our logic is thinking that there are seasons of spiritual warfare, which is why it feels like a surprise attack. But when you realize that spiritual warfare is constant and that we are always actively under attack, you learn to pick up your armor, run to your post, engage in war because you were trained not to go down without a fight, having done all to stand. Because as Paul saw the world's waging and spilling into the church, he began to challenge the church at Ephesus, telling them, hold yourself together, stay protected, and remain guarded. Know what you stand on, consider your refuge, and be mindful of your worldview. Paul's worldview was symbolically shaped by being imprisoned and having studied the armor of those who imprisoned him, the Romans. The Romans undeniably had the largest, strongest, and greatest empire and army of their time. They were feared, hated, and invincible because they had the latest developments in war tactics and strategies. You see, at the foundation of their armor was the belt that held the entire armor together so that they wouldn't have to stop fighting to keep that which would protect them in place. Then they had an impenetrable breastplate made of the finest metals that would cover their heart and guard their back so that even when someone went to stab them in the back, it would scrape the metal but not pierce the heart. Their sandals were known for encouraging fast-paced movements so that their sandals would dig into the sand, standing firm despite the sand sinking their sandals. Their shield was as large as their body frame, and they would gather together to create a fortress to protect their individual self and each other in the line of war. They were a formidable force together. Their helmets would keep their head intact despite whatever came their way. But then they developed a sword, which was a short knife, readily available at their side that was double-bladed, sharp on both sides, and could penetrate bone and marrow. <laughs> but to limit Paul's worldview to what he had seen would it be to undermine what Paul had come to believe. Because Paul no longer saw life through the perspective of Saul. When Paul encountered Christ, Acts describes that it was like scales that fell from his eyes. Paul will learn how to walk by faith and not by sight. And when you walk by faith, you walk with the evidence of the things not seen. You are no longer blinded to the light, but you become cognizant of the darkness. You start to see the difference between feeding the flesh and quenching the spirit. It's not that. Once you accept Christ, the devil increases his attacks. No, baby, you're just now privy that the things you once took an interest in are no longer enticing because your appetite is different. And since you're resisting the inclinations you used to feed, the devil operates in schemes to manipulate your weaknesses. That's why Paul never told us to be strong in ourselves. Instead, he said, be strong in the Lord. And then in the strength of his might, because although it's a fixed fight, I mean, it's already won. We are still facing a mismatched opponent, because if I recall correctly, the text says we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but you and I are flesh and blood. And despite popular belief, our enemy, he has position, rank, and power. Paul lists that we fight against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts of wickedness. As the kids were calling, our enemy is just bad vibes and bad energies. What we are actually fighting is something that we can see. Attitudes, dispositions, insecurities, unhealed traumas, unresolved conflicts, false doctrine, and all. Overinflated egos. So, <sighs> so we attach what we can see to, to someone we can see. Because too many of us are not relying on faith, but on our own eyesight. That's why it seems that you and your friends just fell out overnight, or that your spouse just woke up one day and changed their mind, or that this issue with your child just came out of the blue. Because Satan places all these distractions and chaos in our way that we may become overwhelmed and forget that he has already lost. And if he can get us to respond like everything other than a child of God, he's in a prime position to weaken us because there is a war waging. And if the truth of Jesus is not hidden in the core of your person, your armor falls. Because even though you can't control how it's going to happen, where it's going to show up, and what is going to come through when your heart is so full of his holiness and righteousness, you mourn wickedness and are counted blessed. And when your heart has enough courage to pump the goodness of the Lord into your spirit, you are energized to still keep standing in the gospel of peace, because if my Lord has suffered at the hands of all of this before, it's an honor for the world to hate me too, because I'm not of it nor like it. Amen. Paul understood that there would come a time when people would begin to say that truth is subjective, when people couldn't tell the difference between intellectually knowing the historical facts about Jesus and actually committing to following the facts and the acts of Jesus. Hence why after the Gospels, there's a book called The Acts of the Apostles because they carry forward the message of the cross. It was their foundation, the core of their ministry and existence. And when you really know Jesus, there's not a lie that can shake you, an enemy that could break you, a God that will forsake you, or a friend that can take you. So Paul says, fasten the belt of truth. Lock yourself in because if the devil can only operate by strategy. That means he uses schemes to get you to look at the situation on the surface so that you will underestimate him as your opponent and respond in the flesh and not in the strength of God's might. So the belt of truth is a requirement because you are motivated and led by your values because we hold ourselves together by knowing believing and relying on Jesus who is the way the truth and the life and don't let 2023 fool you truth isn't subjective Jesus was the logos the Word of God in the flesh he practiced what he preached he embodied the word and that's why the saints used to say my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness because when you put on the breastplate of righteousness, you are adopting God's moral code so you don't match the world's energy and your character doesn't change because you are an ambassador of Christ. It's not you, but God's name that's on the line because it's a top-down relationship and a parallel standing. Because when Christ is a solid rock on which you stand, even as all other ground is sinking, sin, as you shod your feet with the gospel of peace, you stop romanticizing the cross and you begin to bear it, it becomes more than just a symbol of your faith but your survival tactic. You can stand firm in your wilderness because Jesus he didn't fall for temptation. You are immovable in front of your haters because Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You can stand prepared even when the assignment feels like assassination because the only time Jesus fell was when he got on his knees and prayed, not as I will, but as you have willed, Lord. And that's why faith is called a shield because it doubles as your refuge and it pushes you through to the finish line. Faith, it doesn't look at the circumstances. It looks at the commander-in-chief because it's not about your performance, but God's resume. Because if God, if he does nothing else for me, he gave me the helmets of salvation that guards my mind because after the devil has tried everything, using and coming against your family, your marriage, your children, your finances, your health, your reputation, anointing, friendships, and your sanity. Your salvation reminds you it's a fixed fight because the chastisement of my peace was upon him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's why... There is no divine coincidence that a belt is positioned to hold the core of your person together because the battlefield isn't on the earth, it's in your mind because the battle is for your mind. It's an inherent attack on what it is that you believe. That's why Paul only lists one offensive weapon, the double-ass sword, the sword that penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, the one that judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God, because even Jesus knew how deep the word of God cuts. Because as he faced his enemies, he quoted Psalm 35:19. they hated me without a cause. When he peaked game that Judas would betray him, he spoke Psalm 41:9. he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. When they questioned his identity, he spoke Psalm 110, 1, he will make your enemies a footstool. So if we believe that death and life are in the power of the tongue, you best start speaking the word of God over your life. God did not give me a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-control. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If God before me, who... If God before me, who? If God before me, who can be against me? So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Because surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. New Covenant, it was nice talking to y'all this morning, but it'd be poor preaching etiquette if I ended it here, because although the devil grows from a snake in Genesis to a dragon in Revelations, the dragon is defeated. I told you it was a fixed fight. For if the song says, the blood that Jesus shed for me, despite theological belief, his blood wasn't just shed on Calvary. Luke 2 says that it was shed eight days after he entered into this world. And that's why Paul concludes in the text, pray always about all things in the spirit because by the time christ wrapped up on calvary he imparted his holy spirit that we may have non-stop continual access to the blood that gives us strength from day to day the blood that never loses its power the blood that reaches to the highest mountains and the lowest volleys that's why hell trembles every morning we step out our, our feet on the floor because brand new mercies woke me up because goodness and mercy follow me through my day because we serve a God that never slumbers nor sleeps for late in the midnight hour God is going to turn it around it's going to work in your favor because it's a fixed fight let us pray Spirit of the living God. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us exactly where we stand. Father God, this world is crazy and it's getting a little vicious out here. But Lord, let us walk away remembering that it's a fixed fight. Father God, Block all of the enemy's attacks. Keep a triple hedge of protection around us, Father God. Let us remember that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, Father God. Let us sow love everywhere we go. Let us sow peace wherever we go. Let us sow forgiveness, Lord, so that we can be ambassadors of Christ. Lord. Give us traveling mercies, Father God, so as we are out in this world, we can remember you, Lord. Hide us behind the cross, Father God, so we can see the blood that you shed for us. Lord, we thank you and we honor you. Lord, we love you and we bless you. Lord, keep us, Lord, in the hollow of your hands, And may the people of God say amen. Thank you for joining us in service today.